You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi folks and welcome to the third episode of Let's Talk Photography. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. The observant among you may have noticed that this is supposed to be the December issue and that it's not December anymore. Uh, Let's just say there was a perfect storm of work, illness and family and December sort of went poof into the ether. So we have, uh, we're going to, you know, do the January, the December show in January and do another January show later in January. Anyway, enough chit chat. Joining me, we have a fantastic panel as always. Um, in fact, three familiar voices this time. So let's do them in the random order. Skype has them in front of me here. First off, Antonio from the East Coast. Hi, Antonio. Hey, Bart. How are you? Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. To, actually, Happy New Year to the listeners, too. Goodness me. How could I forget that? <laughs> and to everyone else on the panel, too. Um, Antonio, you are from Switch to Manual, I believe. Switchtomanual.com, yeah. Photo workshops and photo walks in uh, in the Brooklyn area. Local Brooklyn. Excellent. Brooklyn, New York, yeah. There should be plenty of camera father there, shouldn't there? Yes, quite. You never have to leave Brooklyn, you know. I don't have to leave this area and take all my pictures, do my, my entire life's work here. Cool. Speaking <laughs> yeah. of not leaving that general area, we also have uh, New Jersey man Kenny Lee. Hi, Kenny. Hey. Hey, happy New Year to you, Bart, and to all the listeners. Cheers. Um, and finally, not from the east coast of America by quite a few hundred miles, <laughs> we have uh, Mark Pauly from the west coast of America. Hi, Mark. Hello. Happy New Year, everyone. And you are from Twin Lakes Images. That's right. Which is twinlakesimages.com. Exactly. Very straightforward. The topic I have chosen for this month's little chat is... Basically, photography after sunset, because for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, photography before sunset at this time of year doesn't offer nearly as many hours as we'd like. Um, <laughs> I, don't know how, I don't know what it's like where you, are, you guys are, but here in Ireland, we're actually surprisingly far north, and the sun sets before 5pm here, so when I come home from work this time of year, it is pitch dark already, and uh, it doesn't rise in the morning until, you know, getting close on eight o'clock so i don't know if it's quite as extreme where you guys are but daylight is quite bad here that's about what we have here as well i i rarely rarely see the sun on my drive to and from work yeah and of course the other thing is what sun we do have is very very low in the sky it never gets any higher than about 30 degrees so you know well, which does make for some nice shadows during the daytime but <laughs> it does unless you unless you're trying to avoid them <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Although the days are getting uh, the days are getting longer. I mean, um, sun setting a little bit uh, later for us, but it's still about four thirty, yeah. quarter to five. Well, it's it's a sinusoidal shape, so at this time of year, the change is very very minute. It doesn't really <laughs> kick into gear until getting closer to March. Anyway, so after sunset, I figure mentally speaking, actually isn't just dark because there's like a gap between the sun going down and it being dark and sort of the obvious first part of that transition is that you have sort of the dusk sort of setup where there's light in the sky but the sun has gone 
Um, so does anyone here in the panel do much work in that light? I do a fair amount of uh, shooting at sunset or just after the sun is, has dipped below the horizon. Um, I think it has a good deal of uh, to do with the fact that I live on the west coast and I live right near a large body of water and it's easy for me to get over to the water and get all kinds of colors in the sky and the reflection off the water and things like that. So I've done a fair amount of shooting at that point, uh, um, and I've gotten you know several images that I really like doing that. Uh, is there any pitfalls that jump to mind for for that kind of work? Um, I think the thing that uh, well, there's a couple a couple things, but one of them is uh, it, you're going to want to be a little bit more in charge of your camera if you just go into auto mode. Um, well, I, I'm not going to speak for all cameras. Maybe they, maybe there's cameras out there that, that if you tell them you're shooting sunset, maybe they're pretty good in on auto mode. But for my DSLR, uh, I'm going to want to take control of some things because uh, it's going to want to balance out. If you if it's going to want to balance out the uh, the light or the exposure, um, and that that's one of the issues. The other thing is it's potentially going to really pump up the ISO and. and you're not going to get a good image. So taking control of some of the settings uh, and then exposing for the sky generally um, and letting letting everything else go silhouette has been, for me, that's the thing that works for the most effective image if you're really trying to get the color out of the sky and out of the sun. Um, so, But if you sort of the pitfall to avoid there is to to know what you're exposing for and take control of some of those settings so that you get an image that's uh that's a good image. And tripod or handheld? Tripod. Um I mean I've shot handheld when I didn't have my tripod with me, but um I find that to be the most effective. And not because you're really I don't know that it's because the exposure is a little bit longer or or what, but I just find that uh, um, less movement is 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 good. <laughs> yeah, less movement is better, and and it's easy enough to bring the tripod down. And uh, I think the other maybe the other reason is um, if you're kind of working on a really uh, trying to be precise in your composition. For instance, one of the places that I go real often for sunset shots is uh, um, a county park that's on the water that has a pier that goes out into the water um, and lining that up exactly where I want it on the horizon and and coming out of the corner of the frame or something like where I'm really trying to be precise with the composition I find using the tripod is very helpful because a lot of times I'm going to use a, a remote shutter Anyway, so getting the camera set up, composing it, doing what I want, and then just not touching it anymore um, and firing it off with a remote shutter, um, I tend to get the best images as opposed to trying to do it all handheld. Yeah, of course, the other thing is with water, it's very important to have a flat horizon because obviously water doesn't sit at an angle. So I guess a tripod with a little bubble level can be helpful for that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But uh, it it's... a great time to shoot it's a really fun time to shoot and and i've ex, you know experimented at different times as the sun's just as the sun's going down or just as it's gone past the horizon you can get all kinds of different 
really fun things, not just the I try to I'm sure I'm guilty of shooting the cliche sunset, but I try not to, and I've tried to do some different things, and it's a really fun time to shoot. I'm going to suggest something, right, that's going to sound insane, right? You're standing there, there's a beautiful sunset. Turn your back on it and shoot the other way. Absolutely. <laughs> One not, of my, not insane at all. <laughs> it, it was it bring a funny instance of uh, there was an evening where I was – driving home on my commute from work and the commute uh goes across this bridge and uh to the to the west is water and hills and so forth and to the east is a city but in the distance there's also one of our many mountains in the mountain range and uh, i'm going across the bridge and it's obvious that we have a pretty stellar sunset going on the sky is very colorful it's a uh, there's a real purple tone to the to everything in the sky and um, people all the time stop on the bridge to take pictures yeah and and you look at the there as you're approaching the bridge you can see a whole bunch of people i don't know not maybe i'm, I'm exaggerating two or three people standing pointing to the west getting a picture of the sunset and i parked my car and pointed to the east and the the clouds and the mountain were getting this purple reflection um and it was really a for me it was a much better picture than what was going on behind me where the sunset was yeah it's it's that purple you mentioned is what i just absolutely adore about the opposite to sunset i, I don't know what you call that is, is there like a fancy name for that i'm sure there is i i would have hoped you would have known that <laughs> I would have expected it out of you, Bert. Well, I know the zenith is straight up and the nadir is your feet. But I don't know if there's like an antipode to the sunset. Hmm, Maybe maybe the anti-solar point. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I was going to add about... Oh, sorry. I didn't know if you were done. Go ahead, Antonio. I was going to add about um, dusk. And since I live in a city, I, I love shooting the skyline at dusk because I often like to have some sort of color or presence in the sky in the background um so that time when the sun just sets the sky's you know blue to red to orange you know whatever the the colors are it gives some sort of detail to the sky um and so i like that as a backdrop for the the buildings that i shoot uh um if if i wait until the sun sets and then often you can't see the buildings we'll just photograph do a long exposure and you'll just see the lights of the buildings you won't really see the shapes of it so the so the sky helps to silhouette the buildings that makes sense yeah and i guess and, uh, i i would just like to throw in a, uh, about the city I, I also have become very very fond of urban shooting and of course living as close to new york city as i do i, I get the opportunity to do it quite often um, but I, I don't find it challenging at all. I, I find it quite easy uh, w- without worrying and managing glare and horizons, as, uh, which are so problematic, as we just mentioned. Um, I went on a photo walk about a year ago, and in fact, uh, Antonio was on the same photo walk. And uh, I did um, street photography in New York City at dusk, uh, strictly black and white. And it was probably, at least for me, <laughs> one of the more rewarding photo shoots I'd ever been on. Cool. Yeah, something I do a lot of, I mean, I love that sort of dusky light, but I do an awful lot of HDR stuff at that time because I find that the dynamic range is quite, if you're looking at the sun, the dynamic range is obviously very big. And Mark, you were saying exposed for the sky and at the rest silhouette, but I kind of want both because I'm just that kind of person. 
But if you look the other way, you actually have the exact opposite problem where you have too little dynamic range for the image to pop. And either way, I tend to find tone mapping helps a lot. Am I the only one who thinks that? No, I actually... Uh, one of the one of the recent uh, shots that I did, actually, it was just before sunset, so the sun was still above the horizon but going down. And uh, I was on the shore and did that as an HDR. And I knew that I knew that that's what I was doing and what I was going for because uh, it uh, ex- the 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 sky had a lot of clouds and and a lot of contrast and it looked very nice. But the shore um, with the rocks and stuff, I knew that if I silhouetted it, it was not going to be a very pleasant picture. So I intentionally took a couple exposures, exposed for the Exposed for the shore and exposed for the for the sky and and blended those uh, back in post and so I'll do that occasionally too. I mean, silhouette's not the only thing to do on on the sunset, but if you're going straight for the, I guess what I was meant to say was if you're shooting for the colors of the sunset, you expose for the sky because you're going to get better exposure. But certainly that's the other method is doing a multi-exposure and trying to tone map everything because you can get some good shots that way too. I tend actually not to do multiple exposures. I tend to tone map single rows because that's usually enough unless you're standing in the mouth of a cave or something very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, so so my technique is to expose until I just don't have any blinkies in the sky. And that sort of usually gives me everything in the one exposure. Oh, so just weird. don't, I know. don't blur sorry. out the sky. No, just I'm don't blur out the sky, yeah. You're not, you're not worried uh, about pulling in any noise in the in the shadows when you beef them up in the post? I use a tripod, 200 ISO, problem solved. <laughs> mm, yeah. No, I guess what I'm saying is if you're doing a tone map and you're, and you're lightening, essentially you're, you're mm. going to be lightening the dark tones, which are dark, yeah. then every time you lighten something that's underexposed, which that's what it is if it's dark, you, you, you have the possibility of introducing noise you back do, into though. the system. Yeah. No, you definitely do. So, I mean, I'm, I'm being a bit flippant there, but no, it's, <laughs> I, I would never, I'm always very aware that I need to keep my eyes out and I know my own camera pretty well and I know I can get away with 400, but if it's higher than 400, it's going to look terrible mm. or at least not good. Um, and I tend also not to go to, I, I tend to try to use tone mapping to make it look like it did to the eye instead of trying to get everything perfectly exposed. Yeah, well, to, 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 and I and I use the term HDR, but I I think tone mapping is probably a better uh, better use of the term because certainly I'm not when people think of HDR they think of oh that means that the everything is exposed properly and I think what you're saying and what I did too was the shore certainly did not look like daylight it hmm. was just I brought it out of the darkness enough that you could see the rocks and a little bit of sort of the color and tone uh, that the shore conveyed, but it, but it was well, uh, I was going to say beyond below. It was not a silhouette. <laughs> you could, you could make out the shore, but it was not like it was perfectly exposed. Like I was shooting for the, for the shore. Yeah. That well, makes I mean, sense. If you're there looking at the scene, I mean, you can tell it's in shadow, but you can still see detail, whereas with a camera, because the dynamic range is only 8 bits, that that subtlety tends to fall away unless you do some sort of pseudo or actual HDR. And I, I like my shadows to have something in them. 
-hmm. Since you all uh, are doing HDR or tone mapping at the very least, uh, what is the, your tool of choice? Are you using one of the uh, HDR programs that you would typically use with three exposure or multi exposure uh, editing, or are you using something like uh, Topaz Adjust? Uh, both, actually. <laughs> so my workflow tends now. I use Photomanix Pro for as sort of like the the big guns when I when I really want to go at it. Um, but Photomanix is known to be very bad at Nikon RAWs. So NAF files and Topa are, and Photomanix don't go well together. So I tend to start an aperture, export a 16-bit TIFF, take the 16-bit TIFF into Photomanix, which it has no problem with, tone map in Photomanix, and then actually bring it into uh, Topaz Adjust, because I find that a tone, a tone map, I, I don't know, I, Photomanix for me often leaves the image a little on the flat side. And so I'd use adjust just to throw back some local contrast. Now, are you talking about just on the uh, Nikon RAW files, or are you talking about on the TIFFs too? Uh, well, I would basically, the Nikon RAW never goes any, So I use the 16-bit TIFF in place of the RAW because it has effectively the same information. It has 16 bits worth of information. Okay. Um, so I just use that instead of a RAW and then run through the sort of the, effectively the, the pseudo HDR process. Um, but sometimes you don't need to bother with Photomanix at all and just Topaz Adjust will do the trick. It'll just give it that little bit of a kick, especially actually if you've turned your back on the sunset, the chances are that Topaz Adjust is probably enough. Well, that's what I find Mark, anyway. Mark, your your work is outstanding. What do you, what do, you do? I'm doing, for that uh, processing, I'm doing uh, the same thing. I use Photomatix for my HDR and tone mapping uh, on the particular shot that I that we were talking about, I went into Photomatix and did an exposure for the sky, did an exposure for the sun, uh, excuse me, for the shore. So I ended up with two images and then uh, did some uh, blending in uh, Photoshop, brought the two together and, and got it, got a good sky, got a good shore. Awesome. And and for my sunsets, uh, I tend to just use Lightroom as much as I can. And then I will uh, very often go f to Topaz uh, from there to uh, kind of punch them up. And usually it sort of depends on, depends on the image what punch it up means. But it usually uh, I can usually get a little bit better, get those sunset colors a little bit better, uh, a little bit crisper image, uh, uh, balance out the exposure a little bit. Um, so I, but I, I tend to use Topaz, all of the Topaz tools, quite a bit um, on on those kinds of images. Uh, but yeah, so that's what I'm using. You know, I'll tell you gonna, what, I don't mean to. Oh, oh go ahead. I'm sorry, Antonio. Uh, no, I, I um, was going to say that all this brings up. I was going to mention what I do, but it's not very different than what you guys do. I just do most of the stuff in Photoshop, and I usually, as a smart object, and process the image twice. But it, it brings up this the bigger topic of, um, you know, you're talking about shooting at night or dusk. And uh, one of the things in my notes I wrote is that you, you, you really need to consider doing a lot of post-processing to the picture. Um, often what comes out of the camera when you're shooting at night is just not enough, um, I find, for, yeah. um, you know, a picture. It used to be like when, you shot, when I shot slides or negatives, that was good enough. But now the digital cameras at night just don't seem to quite get enough of the detail or enough of the color or something. And I always find that 
at least when I'm shooting raw, not when I'm shooting JPEGs, when I'm shooting raw, I need to post-process those pictures uh, to do get rid of the noise, punch up the color, bring in some contrast. Like you said, Bart, bring in some details in the shadows. Um, it's never enough just to to end with the, the camera's shot. Um, I wanted to mention that. No, actually, no, that's, that's a really good point, actually. I, I think from shots taken sort of any time from, say, 20 minutes before sunset until sunrise again, they're the shots that I spend much more time on editing than anything else I take during the day. But I kind of think it's worth it, though, because that sort of that soft light and the interesting colours, I think they're... You get rewarded for putting in the effort, I think, which is why I'm happy to spend half an hour on, so, on an image like that if I know I'm going to get something really pretty at the other end. I agree, because night photography is so unique. You know, not everybody... Very few... Less people do it, I think. Everybody goes out mm. in the daytime and they shoot, but less people want to schlep around at night or, you know, freeze their butt off someplace. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Sitting there the, waiting for a 20-minute exposure, you know? So. And there is more schlepping, because you're definitely <laughs> going to need that tripod. <laughs> And there is more waiting because, I mean, at dusk, okay, we might want a tripod to get our five-second exposure to work. But when you go further, you're not talking five seconds anymore. You're starting to talk much longer exposures as, as darkness falls away. And then it does actually take quite a bit of patience sometimes. You know, Asher, I'll get it right on the third try. That could be half an hour later. Yeah, I've done that. I've done that. I spent like, you know, three hours trying to get, uh, you know, a single shot at night because I'm, I'm you know, the focus is off or the angle is off. And um, there is something very rewarding about it. But the the time invested is, uh, you know, there's a lot of time in there. Yeah. That's I have a question for uh, yeah. Antonio. Uh, Antonio, I know I just mentioned that I'm, I'm really interested in uh, street photography and again, my my turf is New York City, but their tripods are illegal, actually illegal unless you pay like 300 bucks. Uh, what are your suggestions for getting around that limitation? Uh, you know, <laughs> it depends. Well, the tripod thing depends on where you are and whether or not a cop is walking by. So as your <laughs> lawyer, Antonio, as your lawyer, can I advise you? <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's always actually illegal, right? But it might not be effectively so you know the the it's easier to seek forgiveness than permission kind of thing um actually in new york it's not that difficult to get a permit um so if you had to get a permit and they're not expensive or they're free actually to get a tripod permit uh so if you had to and you're going to shoot at night and you didn't want to get any trouble and you knew when you were going to shoot getting a permit i don't know what it's like in other cities but it's not as difficult in new york that being said uh certain places obviously you can't um you can't shoot with a tripod inside like Grand Central Station. Inside Times Square is going to be a problem because there's a lot of police there. Um, so for me, if I'm going to walk around my city and shoot at night, I am just fast lens, um, high ISO, very steady hand, uh, wide lens a lot. I always find the wider lenses for me help to uh, alleviate uh, camera movement, um, at least apparent camera movement. It might be there in the picture, but you don't really see it so easily. So, um, And, you know, there's other things like little gorilla pods or, you know, a sandbag that you could sit on top of a car uh, or Actually, your jacket, you know. Speaking of improvising, there's a great tip. I wish I knew who to give credit for. But you take a big washer or something, a sizable piece of metal and a string and a little screw that fits in your tripod hole of your camera and you measure the string so it's the right height for you 
And so you put one under your foot and the other end into the bottom of the camera and just the act of pulling up will actually stabilise you spectacularly. Wow, so I have never, I've never heard that before. Yeah. And I believe actually people have even done this as a product, sort of a bit like, like a tape measure kind of idea that, you know, you, you put the thing under your foot, you lift it to the right height and then you lock it. And, you know, because it, 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 it's hard to hold steady, but it's easy to always apply upward pressure. And then, of course, the string holds it in the same place. So actually you can be spectacularly stable that way. With, again, you're not a tripod and you're not even a monopod. So I, I imagine you know, that should be kind of OK, legally speaking. You know, it's interesting. What kind of Kenny? What kind of pictures are you talking about taking? Like shots of buildings, people, and when you, when you no, say street you, photography, yeah, usually people. Yeah, I mean, I would think that the just sort of the nature of that, the tripod is sort of, you know, in the way. I mean, you're going to be sort of moving around a lot. So, uh, I don't know. I think I think you can get away with a lot in an urban environment without a tripod. In New York, you could probably get away with it until a cop tells you to stop. Uh, I, I don't think they are allowed in New York to ticket you for that. But Kenny, do you usually shoot in monochrome? Or no, color? I don't. I, I I shoot in color, but I uh, I convert. Uh, and we've had a couple discussions about the, our tools of choice, but that's how I go. No, but I mean, so the, the end result of the street photography that people are going to see on Flickr is going to be monochrome, is it? Yes. Which means that a bit of noise is actually not just tolerable, but can be quite... Well, I won't use the word pleasant, but well, I'll use the word tolerable. A, a bit be a bit being the operative word. True, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's it's not as nice as grain for some strange reason. Well, you can call it grain. <laughs> yeah, I know it's different. I don't know why, but it feels different to me. Can, can I uh, change the direction a sure, little bit? Sure. My biggest frustration when we talk about low light shooting is shooting indoors. And uh, I like to do concert photography, and it's not usually legal or or <laughs> or, or approved anyway. Uh, so your your challenge is a getting your camera in uh, in the stealth mode, and b obviously not using a flash, and c not having a tripod. So you're stabilizing yourself against railings, walls, etc. But I still end up with so much noise. So I'd be curious for how you guys would get around that. That's a tough one. You just this what, Oh, sorry, Kenny. What what camera are you using? Well, I can't sneak in my my D seven thousand. That would be pretty tough to do. Uh, I've been using my Canon G G ten, and I'm thinking about getting a, a micro four thirds for the process. Yeah, I mean, because you know the the noise issue is really based on the camera. For the most part, you know, the sensors and the size of the sensors and stuff like that. So I was going to say, like, you know, bring a very, very expensive camera with you um, and, and shoot at a high ISO. I mean, I don't know any other way of getting a shot without the noise or and or use the noise to your benefit somehow. Because, um, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't that you had to sneak it in, the obvious thing is get a brighter lens. But the brighter the lens, the bigger the lens. Yeah, and if you're exactly. trying to sneak, that ain't going to happen. Well, and not necessary. It, de- it depends on the lens. Uh, you know, one four, I have a thirty-five one four lens. It's you know, I can't describe how small it is, but it's very teeny tiny. It wouldn't look any larger than anything else. So, yeah, so a, a thirty-five would thirty-five work well. 
In my mind, I imagine you might need some Zoom at a, at a sort of an event like that, but maybe I'm wrong in that assumption. I, yeah, I mean, I guess, again, it depends on where you're going to be sitting and, and whatnot. You're not going to bring in a, you know, even if you brought in a, um, you know, a, a 2.8 lens, a, a, like an 80 to 200, that might not even be enough um, yeah. for the concert in terms of brightness. I mean, a 1.8 well, lens is... And again, it's sort of it. It's a little bit like the conversation on the sunset. It also depends on how you expose the the issue that I've had is, for instance, trying to shoot with an iPhone in a concert is that it usually the stage area is very bright, so you mm. can see the you can see the artists performing, but everything else is very dark. And when it tries to balance it out, you just get this big blast of light, and you can't really see anything. So I think that. Part of that in talking about do you use a zoom or do you use a wide angle? I think part of that is is also deal, deals with that. If you if you're using a zoom and you zoom in, say on the artist on stage, well that's going to change your exposure and and what kind of light you're getting in and what you're you know how much noise you're going to have. But if you're shooting wide, then you've got all of that black space too. So uh, I think it sort of depends on what you're exposing for and what what, what you're taking the picture of. Yeah, and related to that, um, using spot meter would be probably preferable so that you're not um, having the camera trying to figure out all this dark space. You're, you're, you're focusing right on the subject with a spot meter um, and getting probably the, the correct exposure that way. Which means you need a camera meter. that's going to do that. And that, you're spot right on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> at least center-weighted, if not entirely, if not spot, but yeah. But I, yeah, I, mean, I use yeah. spot my, myself when I'm shooting these uh, these concerts. But the the challenge is I, I don't like to use aperture mode because I have problems with motion. Obviously, if I'm hold, hand holding the camera, so I would rather shoot in a shutter priority so I can at least keep the you know the shutter speed above a one one hundredth. And when you do that, of course, you're cutting down the available light. So it's there's a lot of conundrums here. Would the light be changing a lot? Or would it be quite steady? Well, you know, I mean, you've gone to concerts and you know that they, they well, often use these. In years, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, back when you went to see the Beatles. Uh... <laughs> it was the Eagles, actually, but let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the uh, you know, there's always the lights that change color uh, and, and brightness. So it's, it, you know, it's a moving target. Because mm. my, my instinct for whenever I'm dealing with challenging situations is to throw it into full manual find what works and stay there but yeah if for it's changing sure. too much I mean the colour change probably wouldn't matter but and maybe the different colours are actually the same intensity but yeah probably hard and the problem is you say you find out what works and stay there you know when you're looking especially at a small camera uh, the you know on the back you know, you're not getting a real good indication of no. how noisy these pictures are so you really don't know how it's working until you get home yeah 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 i mean another option in in that regard is to on the newer cameras i don't know if your camera has this Kenny but you know being able to set an auto iso so that you're not having to manage that you know putting an upper limit on the iso um so let the camera figure out at least that part of the exposure and then and then you can manage like your shutter speed pretty well um and and your aperture if you're shooting manually you know the camera does have it and i've never tried that before because i just automatically crank it pretty close to the top there knowing the circumstances but that's a great idea yeah because the the light 
in a, let's say in a light in a concert might change dramatically. They'll have like a, a soft, you know, blue light while the guy's playing the piano and it's very dark. And then suddenly they'll fire up the white lights. And if you're constantly shooting at 3200, then all your pictures are going to be noisy. But if you do an auto ISO, um, there's a good chance that the camera will uh, crank down the ISO when the lights come up, um, giving you uh, probably a less noisier shot. Well, I appreciate the suggestion. I'll have to see who's playing tomorrow night and get out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so technically we didn't get beyond dusk yet. <laughs> technically. So let, let, let's crank it on to the next sort of phase, which is what is called the blue hour. And this is this is kind of a magic time because the naked eye, it's dark, right? Dusk has gone and it looks dark. But when you throw your camera at that sky, it's not dark. It's navy blue. And, and Antonio, you were talking about city skylines. I just love shooting buildings during the blue hour because you have this rich, inky blue to silhouette your buildings against rather than the oranges and, and the purples we've talked about before. Yeah, and it, it very much fits what an urban environment to me would look like with that blue electric light. Um, what's really funny is you're mentioning that your your eye doesn't necessarily see it, but the, like the newer cameras, if you're using your LCD to frame things, you're surpri- I'm surprised at how sensitive those things are and how you can actually see the light that um, your eye can't see. Yeah. Did any, anyone else have... Which experience with this this sort of short window of time after sunset? I've had kind of an accidental experience with it. <laughs> <laughs> that still counts. <laughs> I I uh, on the lake that we go to all the time. Uh, I knew that there was going to be a nice full moon, so I uh, have a, a couple of times now have gotten on the far side of the lake, hoping to get a nice reflection of the moon or a nice exposure of the moon. And uh, I've never, I still haven't come up with the image that I thought I was going for, but sort of the accidental image that I got was one where I did a relatively long exposure. I think I let it go for 30 seconds. And uh, to my eye, it was black outside. But when I got home and worked with the picture, I got this gorgeous blue picture. And so it was totally by accident. Didn't really know that that's what I was doing, but that's what I ended up with. I actually discovered it by accident as well. Um, I went to take some photographs of one of my favourite places, um, sort of the the old college in St. Patrick's College in Maynooth where I work. And I obviously accidentally did it during the blue hour and I absolutely adored the photo. And then I thought I'd go back and try again and it wasn't the blue hour and the difference actually surprised me immensely. Um, and I've actually just thrown the two photos into the show notes. Unfortunately, it's not a video podcast, so I can't quite share. But wow. for, for the wow. panel, you know, it, it's kind of amazing the difference. Because to my eye, they were both taken in the dark. But there's dark and there's dark. And we'll, you'll put those in the notes so that people can look at them if they want. Because you're right, it's a really dramatic difference uh, between those two. Yeah, and I'll, the blue yeah, one is I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll stick them in the show notes. That should hopefully illustrate the point uh, they're not identical identical composition wise but they're pretty close actually I'd say I was within a few yards of the same spot anyway um, I think I oh, sorry I was going to add I, no. I, 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 I have a shot um, if you want to put in the notes as well a shot mm-hmm. of the moon a couple shots of the moon um, rising which is a little bit more after sunset and it was, an, it was um, the sky is the, the, the temperature of the 
light is very, very cold, so it is very blue. But then I got the shot of the full moon, and there was just enough detail in the sky um, that it had a rich blue. It wasn't black. Yeah. It had some color, and uh, it was much better than looking at a, you know, the, the the picture sort of had some value rather than just a shot of a moon against a black, you know, nothing. Um for some reason, it just held held my attention a little bit more. Yeah. So we've all, so we've all shared those images, um, and Bart can put them in the notes. My my question, because because I said I kind of came on mine by accident, um, and and I did it as a thirty second exposure. Um, and I guess the other thing is that I had it was f twenty two, and and I actually did that on purpose because I knew at a long exposure the moon was just going to be a big blur. So yeah. instead, I was going for more of the like I would do with the sun to try to get the light to be rays. So the the f stop was intentional for that purpose. The long exposure was sort of just experimental and accidental. My question to you guys is. On the images that you've shared that are blue, I mean, is are all of these longer exposure? Do you need the longer exposure to get that blue to come out? Since my eye is seeing black, but my camera is seeing blue, is that because I'm shooting a longer exposure? I, I can answer for me and say that you, I'm ta- you're talking from the shots I do between about 20 and 30 seconds. So I guess the answer is yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. Because that was mine was 30 seconds. So, And Antonio? Uh, I'm actually just checking. I don't think I oh. shot. I don't think I shot it. Uh, looking at the moon. Well, shooting the moon is an interesting subject because you don't shoot it the same. I was going to say let's you... transition to that actually because that's. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of putting that in my notes, but that is something where the universe plays tricks on you because in your eye, that moon rising looks big and looks interesting, and you point your camera at it in quote unquote the normal way, and it's teeny tiny and not very interesting. So, so in your example shot there that you gave with sort of the ready hint of the moon against the blue sky, mm-hmm. I'm guessing you had to zoom a lot. I was using my 300 millimeter, which on my uh, smaller sensor camera equates to a 450, uh, 35 millimeter equivalent. So that's, you know, that's a lot of zoom, but not enough because you see how much of the frame is empty. <laughs> you but, you say not center. enough, but it is enough. Well, yeah, it depends. For certain I mean, types of photo. Yeah, I mean, this shot, I, I went and I, you know, I centered the moon. I made, I made it. I used the frame to um, to my advantage with this relatively small moon. Um, I would have loved to have it like a six hundred or eight hundred millimeter on that because I'd love to get close ups of the moon. But that's what I had with me. Yeah. Um, this I actually shot um, at a well low ISO four hundred at a sixtieth of a second. Um, Thing it uh, f yeah f ten so it seems sort of counterintuitive to be shooting this this moon in the dark at a sixtieth of a second at ISO four hundred with uh, such a um, high f stop but uh, as you were saying your eyes you know the tricks that uh, are played your eye is compensating for the light but you have to realize that the moon is reflected sunlight it's incredibly bright um, so what's interesting is that my camera is compensating for the brightness and it is still giving me some detail in the sky um, at the at the blue hour that you're talking about. So it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. What I would say is, you know, when it comes to shooting the moon, unless you have a telescope, you're not going to get a frame-filling giant shot of the moon. But 
don't let that put you off because you can throw the moon even as quite a small you know number of pixels to add interest to a whole bunch of other kinds of shots and I've taken quite a few pictures of the moon and the biggest lens I have is 250 millimeters, which means my moon is even smaller than your moon. And <laughs> assuming you have something that it's part of a composition instead of an attempt to shoot the moon, you know, the silhouette of a tree with the moon next to it, a beautiful building with the moon rising over it, that all works. But the thing is, it takes, it takes a lot of planning because the moon is low to the horizon for a very short amount of time. And so you actually need to know where you need to be, when you need to be, if you're going to get one of these shots to work. Mm. And for that, I use apps. And in particular, I use an app called... Ooh, what is it called? Where's my iPad? Uh, Light Track. L-I-G-H-T. How do they spell it? I think I have that one. I mean, it also shows you where the sun is rising, too. Is it the same Yes, it has app? two modes. Yeah. It has a sun mode yeah, yeah. and a moon mode. Yeah. And using that, it's possible then to do these things like align, say, you know, a church spire is a particularly good thing to use because, of course, if there's any light left in the sky, you get the little cross on top as a free bonus um, silhouetted against the sky. But you need to know when because the moon rises quite quickly. So you probably only have a 15 minute window to get the shot. And if you're not in the right place, if you're frantically running around trying to get stuff to line up, the chances are the moon will have moved and your, your time's up. Yeah. Also, as you're saying that, I'm thinking it's important maybe even the night before or some other day to actually practice shooting so that you have your exposures all down so that the last thing you're doing is sitting there experimenting while you're trying this, you know, trying to line up this moon and the steeples and stuff like that. You're you're already knowing what you're shooting at and you just go and you set up and you're done. So, again, it's like different than daytime shooting. You really sometimes spending some time practicing and doing things before you really are going to get your final shot. Yeah. The other thing to note is that the moon moves from day to day by sort of about a fist and a half's width, sort of between one and two fists width at arm's length. So if you see that the moon is getting close to being somewhere interesting, that's where it'll be tomorrow. So, yeah. Unless that's where it was yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Assuming, of course, it's in the right direction, because otherwise you're seeing that there was something interesting the day before. As, anyway. we're talking, as, as we're talking about the moon, before I forget this, um, mm-hmm. uh, doing the opposite, like which, sort of what you were saying about sunsets, like, you know, you're looking at the moon, turn around. I mean, looking at the sunset, turn around and shoot what's behind you. Yeah. In the middle of the night, I, you know, I haven't shot, I haven't done this a lot, but setting up my camera and using the moonlight to illuminate subjects. Yes. So shooting under a full moon is so incredibly cool. Uh, I recommend anybody to go do that sometimes. It's almost dreamy, isn't it? It's dreamy. It's weird. It's like when you look at the pictures, you're saying like they look like they're shot in daylight because there's like harsh shadows, but there's something going on in the background. The sky is moving or the clouds are moving. Um, It's a really interesting time to shoot. And you'd be surprised at how much light you have from the full moon. Yeah. Well, you, in theory, if you have good eyes, you'll read a newspaper by a full moon. Yeah, you stay out there long enough. I, I The one time I shot under full moon, I was out there for two hours, and I didn't even have to use a flashlight to see my camera or the settings on it. I mean, um, it was it was very easy to see at night. But in, So you're letting the camera expose for a long time, you know, on a tripod or something like that, and you'll get a picture. I've seen shots um, done in full moon that looked like they were shot in sunlight. 
all the things in the background were blurry, like the clouds were moving or the or the cloud the the um, stars were streaking, and it, it was a yeah. very bizarre effect. Yeah. yeah, and the thing, right? Moonlight is reflected sunlight, which means that if you set your 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 like if you leave your camera on auto white balance, it will get confused as bigara. But if you just put it on the sun, which sounds utterly counterintuitive because there ain't no sun anywhere in sight, but you dial it to sun and you set it off, it'll look right. Actually, that goes for stars and everything too, by the way. Because if you let your camera guess, it will guess completely wrong. Sunshine, daylight is actually what you want. Uh, but, but the thing where you have like what looks like a normal exposure, the sky is blue because you have all this moonlight, and yet there are stars. It messes with people's heads, but it's good fun. Um, should we move into talking about the stars? I didn't want to focus on it for too long in this episode, but we probably should mention it. Absolutely. I'm very interested. Every time you talk about it, I'm intrigued and think I'm going to go do it. Dude. I haven't tried yet. I haven't tried yet, but uh, I think I will. Th- I'm all for encourage, it. Yeah. Maybe you'll encourage me here. Well, I'm all for it, yeah. And and I'll make sure to, that, Bart, I'll send you some links to some shots that I did for star photography, but it is a lot of fun. It's very... I don't know. Some there's a very big satisfaction to be able to shoot something in the sky that you can't see. Yes. So. Yeah. I guess the first thing to say is it's not as hard as you think. Um, what you absolutely need is a tripod. What you absolutely need is a camera on which you can ideally manually focus, but if not, at least do a focus lock. Um, because you've got to do your your astronomy stuff at infinity. Now that doesn't mean you turn the lens as far as it'll go that means that you focus to infinity they're not the same thing um if your camera won't actually do manual focus if you're lucky you're going to have a lens with a little infinity symbol and a line and you turn the line to the infinity symbol and you're finished um but a lot of lenses don't have any lines at all on them these days and if you can't do it manually what you can do is if you find something on the horizon like a light and if you can get your center spot over that light and you can make your camera meter, that's infinity. Or the moon or a planet might do it too. If you just find something that's far away, you get the you get the camera to meter on it and then lock the focus. Then you're May golden. I, sorry, I wanna I wanna add something to that. Yeah. Um a couple of things. Um first of all, the infinity point changes on a lens depending on the temperature. Uh, whether or not the camera, the lens is expanding or contracting based on how hot or cold it is. So you'll find that that you ever notice that infinity, you can actually sort of dial uh, focus past infinity a little bit. Yes. That's because your lens um, infinity point can change depending on the temperature of the lens. So you need to be aware of that. But one of the things I've I learned or I figured out is that when you're shooting the sky, it's so hard to focus on something. Like you said, finding a planet or something. It's just something bright that you can focus on. I've been using the LCD um, um, on back of my camera to focus um, with a loop on the back of the LCD so I can enlarge it. And on my Nikon D7000, you can actually zoom in to a focus point. Um, and so when it's really hard to look through a viewfinder at night and try to yeah. find something to focus on, especially if you're using a wide lens. A telephoto lens is mm, a little bit easier because it's telephoto. But a wide lens, it's almost impossible to lock, the, to me, to find a perfect infinity point. Antonio, use, you've, said, you've used that term a couple times. Too. Are you talking about something like a 10 to 20 or 
uh, what the wide lens? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll get I back mean, to that in a minute, Kenny, because yeah, there's, yeah. there's, the, the rules are a bit different. Okay. Yeah, but with the wider with the wider zooms, I find it you know it's a, generally harder to focus at night manually. Um, so I use the screen to augment that because the screen is, um, you know, it will enlarge the pixels, it will enlarge what it's seeing. Uh, you know, I'll use live view or something like that. Yeah. And uh, I have a um, like a three times magnifier that I put on the back of the camera. Usually I use that for video, but for this, it's perfect for focusing. And then I just enlarge it, and then I'm dialing the focus very gently. And when I see it sharp on the LCD, then I know it's it's done. It's done. Yeah, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to my, the lens I use for this stuff has a line for infinity, so I tend to dial it to infinity and then take a test shot, zoom into a hundred percent, and then just tweak the tiniest little bit because, like you say, the the infinity point shifts a little bit, and then once it's hap- once I'm happy with it, leave it alone. But do test it again after every half hour or so, because in a half an hour you may have bumped the lens. Or it may just have shifted a bit. And either way, if you're going to be out there taking 10-minute exposures or something, you don't want to do 10 of them and then realize you're not in focus. Because that, that's a lot of your life gone. But anyway, getting back to the lens question, right? The annoying thing about the night sky is that it doesn't stay put, right? It's, of course, it isn't moving. We're moving. So as the Earth spins, everything rises and sets. The moon rises and sets. The sun rises and sets. But so do all those stars. And... Your temptation with astrophotography is that you want something like the Hubble Space Telescope took, and your temptation is to stick the biggest zoom you have on and point it at the night sky. And if you do that, you will come home with pretty close to nothing because you're losing out twice. So every time you zoom in, what you're actually doing is you're taking the same amount of light and stretching it thinner is how I like to imagine it. So if you're taking those same few photons and making them fit across the entire field of view, you've just stretched them out so there's less of them hitting each pixel on your camera. So everything's just gotten dimmer, so you need to expose longer. But everything's moving, and the more you zoom in, you're magnifying the motion. So the more you zoom, the less you can expose, but the more you have to expose. And so it's a battle you start to lose very quickly. So I do all of my astrophotography stuff at 10 millimeters, because at 10 millimeters you're zooming out, so you're actually you're negatively magnifying the rotation of the Earth. You're actually shrinking the movement a little, and then you can easily go 30, 40 seconds and keep points of light, not just you know tolerable streaks, but actual spots of light if you if you're going to even 30, 40 seconds. So I, does that answer the question you had about lenses, Kenny? Absolutely. That was what I was looking for. Okay. And so the obvious thing then is if you're taking a wide lens, you can't just point it at the sky. If you're going to get a compelling photo, foreground really matters. At the very least, you need a silhouette of a tree or a building or something which forms two roles. It gives the eye a sense of scale and it anchors the viewer so that it's clearly this is a sky scene I'm looking at not an empty shot on Flickr. Someone didn't just post black. So, you you know, composition is actually probably at least as important, if not more important. So so I actually spend a lot of time looking for places where I have things I can silhouette in sort of the, the prettiest directions on the sky. And the one final complication is that if you look... If you're in the Northern Hemisphere... 
the closer your camera is pointed to the pole star, the less the actual movement of the stars. And the closer your camera is pointed to the celestial horizon, so south for us, the quicker everything is moving. So shooting north will give you longer exposures than shooting south. You mean longer exposures without having the stars move? Exactly. Yes. Um, Of course, so you're pointed at the sky, you go as long as you can go, and you have a bit of fun, and really that's all there is to it. Uh, Manual white balance is important. Make sure the focus is right. Your widest, you know, open the aperture wide up and have at it. And I like to use a, re- a remote so I have less camera shake. But you don't need a remote. If you put a piece of, if you have a piece of paper with you, you put it over the lens, you press the button, then you take the piece of paper away, then you're going to have no camera shake either. But a remote does make things a bit easier. Um, or using I, I, a timer. Yeah, or the a timer, timer, yeah. Yeah, actually, that's even easier than paper. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you, also, when, when you, can you hear me? Am I Yeah. On? Yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> When you use the self-timer, it's also if you have a camera that can lock up the mirror, it's sort of kind of important to do that first Um, because then what will happen is when you trigger it, the mirror will go up, which is what makes the camera shake the most. And then the shutter will go off and you'll um, eliminate uh, as much shake as possible. You might still get it. But uh, Bart, you're saying a tripod. You know, I, um, I posted a shot. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, a shot Andromeda Galaxy. Actually, just out of luck. I was in uh, Cape Cod in, in the backyard of a uh, sort of parking lot of a hotel and it was night and it was nice out. And I was like, well, let me just point my camera to the sky. But I didn't have a tripod. So I took my jacket. I, I bunched it up and put it on top of my car and set my camera up pointing straight up. And I ended up getting some pretty decent shots um, of, of the you know, late fall sky. Uh, and that's how I accidentally discovered that I was shooting the Andromeda Galaxy, by the way. So, um, so you used the car as the world's biggest tripod. <laughs> it was, yeah, and and I used my jacket as sort of to prop it up at different, prop the camera up at different angles. Oh, um, it did. It did mean that I mean because I didn't bring a tripod with me. I was I was at a family event and I brought my camera, but I was like I didn't think about bringing my tripod. But it was one of those things where it was like you know the great thing about being a photographer is having a lot of fun improvising uh, and figuring things out. So. Um, yeah, I would have preferred a tripod. In fact, the next time I went to Cape Cod, I made sure I brought my tripod. But, uh, you know, that first time when you're looking up, um, you know, I just set the camera on a long exposure. I had my, my 35-1.4 lens, I think. Um, and, you know, just set it up and tried to find that infinity point. I think the way you did the first time, it was just sort of guessing and then looking looking at the back of the camera. And once I locked it, I took the exposure, set the camera up on the uh, on the jacket on the on the car, and 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 I made up some made some good shots. At least I was impressed, and it was the first time I ever took. I was so satisfied with having taken a picture of a galaxy. Yeah, and, and yeah. I'm looking at it here, and I'll stick it in the show notes as well. You're not peering at the image trying to find out where the galaxy is. It's right there. Yeah, and that was actually pure luck. <laughs> so, you know, you know, the exciting. field of view in that shot isn't very big. You were very, very lucky. <laughs> Because uh, yes, <laughs> a lot of the sky is actually surprisingly empty. It's I'm going a little off topic here, but it's one of the things that if you want to, if you have kids and you want to get them interested in astronomy, the worst thing you can give them is a telescope because the field of view is tiny and the chances of them seeing anything are about zero. What you actually want to give them is a pair of binoculars and a good book. Um, but anyway, um, so I had said. 
that it's important to get a good foreground, which is my excuse to sort of transition into some fun topics. So you can silhouette a foreground, but that's just one thing you can do. You can also use something like light painting to really have fun with your foreground. And I always have an LED torch in my camera bag when I'm going out at night because it gives a very different feel. You can take the same scene, say, with... The ch- you know, a church tower is a silhouette or a church tower lit up and they look really different. Um, has anyone on the panel played with light painting? I have not, but for those of us in English-speaking countries, you're talking about a flashlight now? <laughs> yes, torch <laughs> is UK for flashlight, yeah. <laughs> so, so literally, just, you know, it sounds daft, but you just point it at the thing you want lit up and that will be lit up and the rest will be dark and I mean you don't have to use it for astronomical shots, you can also use it to draw people's attention in something else Um, A a long time ago in a galaxy far far away uh, the film days there was a company that created a whole system, uh, it was called the Hose Master Does anybody know that? Anybody hear of that? This sounds like we're all going to get wet no, it was a light, it was a light painting system. Um, I can't remember what kind of lights it uses. It was very very expensive, but the idea was uh, people would use it um, for doing. Uh, well, one of the things they did was still life, mm-hmm. and you talked about shooting at night. And I was just thinking, wow, you know, shooting still life uh, in the dark and using a torch <laughs> or something like this hose master, which is just projecting light and painting over the places that you want the camera to see, that you, you wanted to record, would be a very interesting idea. This, this hose master thing you, was the idea is that you would you know, set the camera up in dark and you would um, bulb and you would just wave this light wand someplace on your subject and you go over the whole, you know, the exposure would be minutes because you were wandering sure. around painting the light. But it would create this sort of ethereal effect because the light, as you're waving the light, and if you would do this with a torch as well, now you got me saying torch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but as you do it, the light is coming from different directions because you're, you know, you're you're moving it around and you're using it to uh, sort of sculpt out of light your subject, and you can come up with some really great effects. I haven't done that yet. I think this, uh, I think the switch to manual guys are me and my my partner this summer are going to probably run a nighttime. Um, uh, photography uh, class, and we might do the light painting, but we might do it with a um, um, uh, a hula hoop, a hula hoop with LED lights in it, and see what see what happens with that. That should give a very interesting shape. Yeah, and and they're very bright these hula hoops, and they they cast light out, but you put someone in the middle of one. Uh, anyway, it's the same same concept. Sorry, I'm eating everybody's time here. No, no, that that sounds like. Because you can actually have, I, I've seen, I'm trying to remember where it was, but I've seen somewhere so, where someone had done in a workshop where they had someone in a cowboy outfit sitting in a room with props. And they darkened the room and let everyone in the workshop go in with a flashlight. I'll, I'll be American. And make different photos of the same scene, but each of them chose to focus on, literally to focus on different things by choosing what they illuminated. And it was kind of very interesting, actually, how just your angle of light and your choice of what to light and what not to light resulted in spectacularly different photographs of the same scene. That sounds really cool. So you, That's you know, a great so, idea, yeah. So don't just do this outside. <laughs> you, can, you can use this anywhere. Um, the other thing you can do with a flashlight 
is instead of pointing it at... Actually, before we move on, just to say, don't be afraid to walk through your shot. You're doing a long exposure and it's dark. As long as you don't point the flashlight accidentally into the camera, you'll be invisible. So feel free to walk through your own field of view and light things. I've done a few in um, a cemetery where I did manage to get the absolute living daylights frightened out of myself by a cat. Light painting a headstone, a tombstone, and two eyes popped out from behind it. I jumped. <laughs> I honest to goodness jumped. But of course, cat's eyes light up like cat's eyes. And I don't think I've ever been as frightened in my life. But anyway, in, <laughs> in a cemetery, you can have a lot of fun and this kind of thing by choosing to illuminate, say, just one or two headstones and having the church go into silhouette and stuff like that. But I said that you don't want to accidentally light into your camera, but you can do it on purpose. And again, you'll be invisible. So you can walk into the scene and literally write out letters with the flashlight. And all that will be seen, because you're going to be moving, all that will be seen is the outline that you do. So I'm going to pop another photo into the chat room and I'll stick it into the show notes as well. So the astronomical abbreviation for the constellation of Orion are the letters O or I. So the photo I've popped in the show notes is a photo of the constellation of Orion with some trees silhouetted below it. And I've used a flashlight to write in O or I straight onto the shot. It's, you know, it's daft, it's fun. Well, I haven't done any of that, but I've seen the work that you did. For instance, the one where you uh, lit up the, uh, used the flashlight to light up the building, uh, the tower. I think it was a castle or something, and uh, to get the sky and then to get that lit up. And those look great. Um, I just popped into the notes. None of us, uh, I, we haven't talked about this, but you, you mentioned it a little bit as far as uh, pointing toward, pointing the flashlight towards the camera. I know that there's all kinds of fun fun things you can do with sparklers and lights and stuff, spelling out words, and we'll just take a second to point out the Kickstarter project uh, for for Pixel Stick. Have you guys looked at this? I'm just looking now. This looks like yeah, magic. It's, I, I don't know. I can't explain it. I haven't looked at it enough, but it's sort of a light panel and uh, with various lights, uh, various colors, and you can... Do all kinds of amazing things, and I know that uh, it's. I don't think it's out yet. I don't. I think they just ended the Kickstarter, so I don't think anybody's actually out in the wild with these yet. But it's just. It's pretty amazing the stuff that you can do. Uh, light painting, doing things at night, experimenting, going beyond uh, the traditional shots during the daylight that you you would think about. Because really, that's that's what we're doing with cameras, right? We're we're right. using the light to. To come up with really interesting images. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry, Antonio. I was going to say. I was going to say. Besides a, um, a flashlight or a light panel. I mean, I, I've done night shots in the city with my strobe light. So I've brought, brought um, you know, my external strobe and had a had a remote release for that, um, and have used that to light subjects. Um, and you have a really powerful light source. And one of the things I think I did a long time ago was setting up my camera in a in a field. I think this might have been in school or something I did this, but I used an external flash and I set up the camera just like Bart would say about doing light painting. And then I ran to different spots and I took the flash and I popped it on myself. And I, I moved close to the camera, far away from the camera. So it was a single exposure of me in like five different places. And the flash just sort of illuminated 
me in those little spots. And, you know, yeah, again, you, know, you find yourself find yourself bored one night, <laughs> set up the camera someplace and, and go and take some pictures of yourself. Um, it would be very unique. Uh, and I can guarantee you your friends haven't done that. That's pretty cool because you're invisible unless you get really lit up and a flash should do the trick. Yeah. I mean, uh, especially if you're uh, – it doesn't even have to be that dark. I mean, if you are setting your, your um, aperture down enough, the camera is not going to expose – You know, especially if the ground is dark or you're you know, uh, against trees or something like that. So you, the, it's only going to really pick up the flash when the flash goes off because the flash is so bright. Um, and again, that's one of those things where you want to set your aperture to what the flash is doing. So uh, you know, just because it's night, you think, well, I should open up the aperture. No, it's like you're shooting a pool of lights, like you're shooting sunlight. So you're going to probably set that aperture really, really high, like at 16 or something like that. But you'll see that the exposures on you look perfect. So it's a fun thing to do. It's like I, I recommend everybody doing that. Actually, you just reminded me. I'm going to move us on in a second because I want to get one more quick topic in. And I know we're running long, but it's a bonus show, so it's fine. Um, I <laughs> I managed to, while doing light painting, lose my camera. Now, I found it again. <laughs> right? So you can imagine the scene, right? I'm on, I'm on top of a hill. It, there's trees. There's a big field of grass. And there's a tower, which is you know, a pretty tower. And so I want a wide shot. But I want the tower light painted. So I went for a minute-long exposure. I set off the exposure, and then I ran towards the tower with my flashlight, and I painted the tower. And then I counted in my mind, you won 1,000, two 1,000. I said, okay, I'm done now. The exposure's finished. I turned around, and there was just this massive expanse of dark, somewhere within which was my tripod. And what I've started <laughs> doing now is I tie a little, a little red LED light to the bottom of my tripod so that I can always find my camera again. <laughs> so, so the lessons, all, we all thought that Bart just knew everything, but what we're, what we're learning here is that these are all lessons that he learned by, uh, by trial and error. He oh, lost God, his yeah. camera once, so now, so now he finds it with the red LED. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, trial and error is the answer to everything. There's no shortcut. <laughs> Yeah, actually, as, you, as you're saying that, one of the things that reminded me of is when I'm shooting at night, um, I do like to keep my night vision a lot. So when yeah. I do bring a flashlight for myself to look in my bag, because for some reason, a lot of camera bags are black on the inside. First, I don't know why. <laughs> I know why. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do bring a flashlight with a red um, gel on it, um, you know, just like you would yeah. be doing if you're doing astro, you know, photography or something like yeah. that. You want to keep your night vision. Um, so... Just just a little tip, you know, grab, you know, some – grab a red gel or something like that and strap it around your uh, uh, flashlight so that you that don't blind, blind yourself at night. That was one of the questions I had for myself because I know that I uh, – I know that Bart had mentioned that uh, on some – when he does his astrophotography is to, to have a red uh, light instead of instead of white. So what do you – what do you use? What do you go out and find? Is there – do you – use a special flashlight is it should i be shopping on amazon for a flashlight with a red lens do i what, I, what, what, what I do i want to do right, and i'm sure they exist i got ended up getting it like on a promotion with duracell or one of these things but it's a little it's an led light that has two white bulbs and one red bulb and you strap it around your head like a miner's lamp and if you pull the switch to the left you get red and if you pull it to the right you get white and that goes with me everywhere at night hmm. okay 
And I so have shot. managed to train myself to always go left, you know, always go red until I'm finished for the night and I'm packing up to go home. And only then will I ever flick to white. And Antonio, what were you? You were talking about using a gel or something. But... I, for um, In photographic stores, you can buy filters like gel. Um, how do I describe it? Like acetates that are different colors for putting over lights. And I generally buy a red one. You can usually get some place at the photo stores that give you sample gel packs. Is like a company like called Roscoe. They'll have a, they'll have a um, sort of like a sample filter pack that you can usually get for free. Uh, and they're small enough, and you can just rip one of the red ones out and, and wrap it around with a rubber band. And if I don't have that, I'll sometimes take a red Sharpie, and I'll color the glass <laughs> of, the, of the – I mean that's like in desperation because it doesn't quite make it red. But if I put enough red Sharpie on the, on the, end, on the end of a flashlight, it will, it will do something. But um, okay. yeah. Mark, I would recommend checking out Amazon. Um, I got a, uh, an LED panel. I don't know, maybe it's three by five, but it's got a hot shoe, so it's very, very convenient, and it comes with a pack of, of gels, and it's like 35 bucks. The problem with that is it may actually be too bright, so even though it's red, it's probably still going to... Well, it's adjustable. Oh, well, there we go, then. That takes care of that. Yeah, yeah. The other cheap option, actually, is... I don't know if, the, if they're very popular in the States, but over here, when you're cycling in urban areas, you have the little LED lights for your bicycles that are just three LEDs, and you have a red one for the back and a green or a blue one for the front. Well, the red one for the back is perfect to just stick in your pocket when you're going out for either astronomy or astrophotography. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, another thing, in, in urban environments... Uh, as a recommendation in in um, New York or maybe other other city, I suggest that people um, find groups of photographers uh, to um, work with. Uh, there is that you know being under the bridge at night by yourself with a very expensive camera. You know, probably nothing's going to happen. But you know, if you're with a group of people, uh, it tends to make things a little safer. Um, and I, I tend to like to go out at night, not always by myself. Um, I, I prefer the company of a few people. But it's just something to keep in mind um, in, in urban areas. Strangely enough, in non-urban areas, the opposite's actually true. Because at night, voices carry really well. And if you're out in the middle of nowhere where people are expecting there to be no one, and there's voices coming, the police tend to arrive. This I found out by having the police arrive while I was out taking nighttime photographs. <laughs> um, they almost ruined my shot, but they just didn't. I was, I was like, what, what's going on here? It's like, I'm taking a photograph of the International Space Station. Really? It's going to come in about two minutes. Oh, I'll get out of your way then. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> and he did. Um, but I've never, I only ever once in my photographic life had the police called, and it was because I brought someone with me, so there were voices coming from the dark. But in urban areas, yeah, I wouldn't go alone. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's also fun, you know, to to be with a group of people. I mean, Kenny, we've been on photo walks together, so you know that. Um, and you know, you, you might go into places that you might not go by yourself, so you might be able to get some really interesting shots if you're with a group of people. Of course, that means that everybody else is shooting the same thing, but yeah, but they um, won't get the same photos. They won't get the same photos as you, but it, it just seems to be something to be aware of. Um, you, if anything, you would probably want to have. Maybe one other person with you just to watch your back sometimes. So Now, we're at an hour and 20, and I do want to wrap us up by the time we get to an hour and a half. But I do want to transition into one more topic that I just don't think we could, we could finish without talking about. So 
I've mentioned that, you know, you can get away with a 45-second exposure without turning the stars into streaks. Well, you might want to turn them into streaks, in which case, have at it for much longer. But you don't have to limit your light trails to just the stellar ones. You can, you know, once it gets dark, you can use a long exposure on anything you like. Now, it's going to come as no surprise to anyone on this panel that one of the things I really love doing that with is trains. Because they make lovely light streaks, but you can do it on a motorway overpass with cars. You can do it on a street with cars. So definitely, I would say, when it's dark, play with long exposure because it's really hard to do during the day without lots of filters and things. But at night, it's really easy to do. How how long is long, Bart? Are you are we talking about bulb mode here, or I it, it, I've done both. So I've done star trails of ten minutes, and I've done cars and things of thirty seconds. So anything in between will work. Cool. And I did cars from an overpass uh, at twenty and thirty seconds is what I was getting my best trail of lights from the the composition in the sky was awful and i haven't ever shared them and i won't share them with any of you but uh i i was just i it it it's something that i just was experimenting with uh just a few weeks ago because because i wanted to i had some time to kill <laughs> there's a, a great overpass uh that you can uh, that you can walk on and there's no cars and, and to get over our the highway that's right here by my house and i just wanted to give it a try, so I did, and that's twenty thirty seconds was good for the cars. It was the rest of the composition stunk. Yeah, I actually there's an overpass near here that faces west into the setting sun, and I've had a lot of fun there, sort of in that hour when the sun is gone. But you know, like like we were talking about earlier, there's still some color left, and that way you can get your thirty forty seconds with lots and lots of light trails and have something interesting going on. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing... Actually, I'll pop that one in the show notes as well. Um, The other thing I have great fun with is reflections, if you can find a reflection. Now, I am very lucky to have a railway line next to a canal, which means that when I do light trail stuff with the trains, I I get two of them for free. And not only do you get two, they also converge because they're running parallel to each other, so... Not everyone can be that lucky, but if you can get yourself a reflection, you can really have fun. Yeah, I I am so male, I really can't multitask. I'm copying links and I'm completely not talking on a podcast. This is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) We were all thinking, we were all all soaking it in. (laughs) Yeah, it was... um... When you were talking about streaks, I was thinking I really haven't done a lot where I have the light streaks going by. Uh, I plan to. It's one of the shots I like to do. But I've been shooting like cars or actually taxi cabs in the city at night and using not long exposures but basically – well, long exposures but following them while they're, while they're moving. Um, and the fun about that at night is that everything else in the background streaks. So all the other car lights and um, – but – but I follow the cab as it's as it's moving, and because it's at night, all the the, the background is very lit. Um, yeah. And all the background is streaking, and the car sort of stays in focus because I'm locked on it as I move. And that might be like a, you know, like a two second or you know three second exposure. I mean, it really is interesting because the car changes perspective as it's moving. Um, you, you it can... stays in focus, but 
but everything else is blurred behind it. I am staggeringly impressed that you can handhold a two-second panning shot. <laughs> well, again, it's not being, you know, I, I'm not this person who want everything perfect. You know, I don't mind if it's a little jostly or something like that. If the gist of the car or whatever the subject is, is in focus and you get the feeling, then then I'm good with that. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, you know. Um, I, I've done it with unsurprisingly trains. <laughs> And yeah. the, the the trick I use is I hold the camera in my hand and I start I set it in shutter priority and I start dialing down the shutter speed until the slowest speed I can handhold and have it sharp. And then I stick it in rapid fire mode, stick it on the front of the cab as the train goes by and hold down the button. And eight out of ten will be rubbish and two out of ten will be shit cool. Well, then you're then it's a success, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. But it's it's definitely not the kind of thing that you do. Like, I would never do that if there was something like a special steam train that I was never going to see again or something. Because the chances are you're going to come home with bubkis. But if you do come home with something, it's going to be something special. So yeah, it's it's fun to do as well. Well, we can. Yeah. Is there anything else people want to throw into this conversation before I wrap us up? I'm going to look at my notes. I wrote some stuff down. I mean, I I I did talk about like you do want to do some post processing afterwards. Uh maybe some um uh noise reduction. I don't know if you t- if you do this Bart when you do astrophotography, you take a dark slide. Um I'm too to lazy to eliminate. <laughs> <laughs> a dark slide is essentially if you take a if you're taking an exposure of the sky, say you take a 5-minute exposure um, then the idea is that you take another exposure with the um, lens cap on of the same length of time. And what you end up with is a sort of a map of the noise in the, uh, in the, on, the, on the sensor. And you then in Photoshop take that dark slide and you sort of superimpose it on top of your original picture. And uh, with some finagling in Photoshop, you, you can help to eliminate some of the noise in the, in the picture. I haven't done that myself. I think my camera does that as a noise reduction. So I've tried that. But um, one of these days I'm going to actually try it by shooting a dark slide myself and bringing it into Photoshop Yeah, you, you, uh, and you, doing that. Your camera will have a setting called long exposure noise reduction and it will do what you're describing. But the downside is if you do a five-minute exposure, you then can't use your camera for an extra five minutes because it's exactly. doing that second exposure. Yeah. And that's why I tend not to bother with it. And to be honest... I do all of my Astro stuff at about 200 ISO and I just don't have a problem with noise. Yeah. I, 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 ha- I haven't had a problem with it. I've shot at 400 or 800 and the noise is, you know, I can knock it down a little bit in Lightroom. Um, but it is one of those options. And the only thing I don't know, maybe you guys know, is uh, when you do a dark slide, does it work for a raw file or is it just for JPEG? I mean, sorry, the noise reduction. Is that for a JPEG or is that for raw? Because I don't know if the, it affects the raw file. Should be for in camera. Yeah, the in camera noise reduction. I don't, yeah. I don't know. That should be the raw it's working on. Is it? Well, I my camera only does raw, and it does that. As in, I have mindset not to do a JPEG at all, and it'll still do the noise reduction. All right. So either it's wasting my time. <laughs> well, that's what I don't know for a fact. Like, is it actually reducing the noise in the raw, or is it, or is it just wasting your time? My understanding is it's doing it in the raw because that's actually the sensible place to do it. I've. Mm. When I was a student, when I was a student, I studied experimental physics, and for my final year thesis, I did some astro work. And when I was doing real astro work with actual telescopes, we always did both a dark frame and a light frame because the light frame picks out different kinds of noise. 
but goodness me, it's tedious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, I would, maybe a five-minute exposure. Uh, yeah, it would be, you know, 15 minutes. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, the longer you do, the more noise you're going to get. And if, actually, there's something which I haven't really done yet, but if you want really long light trails, you don't do one really long exposure. You actually do five, ten, twenty shorter long exposures and then stack them together into one final product. Because otherwise the noise is really going to become a problem. And the other thing you're going to do is you... Even when you're not in the blue hour, if you do a 15-minute exposure, that sky is going to light up. And so if you're trying to get star trails and you do an hour-long exposure on bulb mode, you're going to come out with just a completely saturated all-white exposure by the time you're done. So you've got to do them in little steps and then Photoshop them together afterwards. Mm. So we're back to, what, yeah, we're back to post-processing. We're yeah. back to, yeah, and that's I'm what afraid. most of those... Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. Most of those really beautiful star trail ones where somebody's sitting in a canyon or something and you see the streaks from one side to the other, isn't that what they're doing most of the time, that those are stacked expo- yes. stacked images? Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm just looking here. I'm going to pop it in the show notes as an example. This is this is the longest one I've done as a single exposure, which came out without any actual real problems. And I'm trying to find in the Flickr EXIF display... What ISO I use for this? And of course, Flickr isn't showing me what I want because that would be helpful. <laughs> uh, oh, it's the, it's it's the, the, new, the new format is supposed to be better for us all. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what they say, right? Yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll stick it in the show notes because the point being, this is this is a one this is a one shot fire it, leave it go for I think it was eight minutes or something. And you know, those are to me at least they're enough of a light trail to be effective. Wow, that's that's nice, right? So yeah, and just that detail on the buildings in the front, just enough. Oh, I, yeah, it's a really nice feel for that in there. Yeah, that's one raw processed twice, and the stuff that's not sky was tone mapped, and the sky was not tone mapped because tone mapping the sky is ick. Because what you do then is you take your noise and you multiply it by a bazillion. Um, yeah, so the yeah. land is tone mapped and the sky is not. How long did you say that exposure was? Well, I, I'm trying to make Flickr tell me, but I, it, it was somewhere, but it was about eight minutes. It was oh. ballpark. Yeah. And that was just on one shot, no stacking, no messing. Just mm-hmm. set off the tripod, hit go. Wonderful. Yeah. And wow. wait. Yeah. And wait. Well, now you guys got me excited to want to go out at night and shoot, except it's uh, f- 10 degrees out here today. <laughs> I'm going to pass. Actually, well, something the, that can be fun. Our, our challenge here is clouds all the time. Clouds. There's they nothing to cool, shoot. They cool, by the way, as they move <laughs> at night. Um, Antonio, you mentioned way, 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 way back that it's really good fun to take a full moon and to go out and expose for a daytime shot. That goes mm-hmm. double if there's snow. Mm-hmm. I've, yeah. I've done a few. I, I had that happen here a couple of years ago, and I spent a few hours till my toes froze, and I had great fun doing that. Because is that because you're getting the reflection? Yeah, so the moonlight is bouncing off the white snow and you're not waiting two, three minutes, you're waiting like 30 seconds and you have the effect. Wow. Wow. But, well, that's cool. I'm still not going to do it today. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm going to end on one, right, one final tip. You've heard of frostbite, right? So, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say my final tip for all of this nighttime stuff is two pairs of socks. Ah, and I think that is is a lighthearted place to end this somewhat bumper edition. <laughs> yeah, guys, 
As always, it was an absolute blast. Um, let's let the listeners know who you are and where you can be found. So we'll go in the reverse order, and I don't remember what order we went in, so we'll just go in a random order. Um, Mark, where do you hang out online? Excuse me. Um, I am Switcher Mark on uh, the Twitters. Uh, TwinLakesImages.com is uh, my website where you can see my images, and I do a little bit of blogging there, and I uh, uh, have a calendar to show where my exhibitions and so forth are. Cool. Kenny? I'm uh, on Twitter also, and uh, Kenneth Lee NJ or uh, Flickr on Kenny L2007, and I've just purchased the domain NJ Shore Photo, so uh, sooner or later there'll be a web page there. <laughs> That sounds like fun. This this is a New Year's resolution, is it? Absolutely. (laughs) Best of luck with it. Thank you, sir. And finally, Antonio. Okay, you can find me on Twitter at uh, amrosario. And also my Switch to Manual account is switch number two Emanuel. And you can find me at amrosario.com. And my my photo workshops are switchtomanual.com, where we we teach people how to use the manual settings of their camera. And we'll do nighttime shots in in manual someday. Well, my nighttime stuff is, that's the first thing I do when I go out at night is I take the little dial, turn it to M, and off I go. There you go. You're one of us then. Oh, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks very much, guys. I've been your host, Bart Bouchot. You can find me at bartb.ie, where you'll find links to my Flickers and my YouTubes and yeah, the whole stuff. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, the easiest thing to go to do is to go to www.letstalk.ie and on the contact page, you're going to find links to our Flickr group. You're going to find links to our Twitter account, all sorts of stuff. So if you want to contact the show, that's the place to go. And until next time, happy snapping. Listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Are you a movie fan? A film fan? Well, check out the International Film Club podcast right here on the Spotlight Network. Tim Chatton and Alex Barker dive into a different movie every time, ranging from classics to some of the newer stuff, and sometimes some obscure stuff that you actually might enjoy. So check out the International Film Club podcast right here on the Spotlight Network.